Reunion Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15 and Matthew chapter 2 verse 18 was presented by David Crabtree on August 4, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute. Reunion Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. Does everyone have, there are two handouts, does everyone have the two handouts? One of them is titled Jeremiah 31, 15, and Matthew 2, 18. The other one is entitled Names of the Children of Jacob. I'm actually going to go through the longer one. The second one I put together in an attempt to try to simplify things. I'm not sure I was entirely successful, but I'll actually be working through the other handout. When I took on this task of trying to put these two verses together, I did not imagine what a big project I was taking on. It just kept growing and growing and took a lot more of my time than I had anticipated. But it was a lot of fun. I found it very interesting, very challenging, a lot like Earl, I think. And there's something about doing it yourself as opposing to hear someone else's results. It's just, it's night and day difference. You just, there's so much that you learn. There are so many different facets of it that it would be impossible to convey all of that. One of the things that happened here is I looked at Matthew, so then, and that threw me back into Jeremiah, and I started looking at Jeremiah, and I asked the question, why Rachel? And that threw me back into Genesis, where I spent most of my time, actually. And so we're going to go through Matthew, uh, Jeremiah, into Genesis, and then we'll work back the opposite way. But just as a comment, this last year I was looking at Jeremiah and realized how critical it was to understand Deuteronomy in order to understand Jeremiah. And I've been looking at Isaiah and the importance of understanding Exodus for understanding Isaiah is fairly significant. And so what I'm finding is that as I look at the New Testament, it throws me back into the Old Testament, which invariably throws me back into the Pentateuch. A good understanding of the Torah is so foundational. I think that's very interesting. First, looking at Matthew 2, 16 through 18, it is not interpretively a difficult passage. It is the killing of the innocent children in Bethlehem by Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a troubled man. I highly recommend, if you have not read Josephus's Jewish Wars, very interesting spends quite a bit of time talking about Herod and his family. He was not Jewish by heritage. He was Idumean, so it was an area that was conquered by Judah, Judea, and people were forcibly converted to, to Judaism. So he is of that category, and that becomes significant as you read through in Josephus. He is not of royal blood. He's a king. He becomes king of Judah, but he's not of royal blood. That is also significant. So he's not really Jewish. He's not really royal. 
And yet he's sitting on the throne of Judea. And as a result, he is concerned about any pretender to the throne that might be out there that would have a better claim than he does. And there are a lot of them. So how does he stay king? Well, he stays king because early on he befriended the Romans when they came into the area. And interestingly, he befriended the wrong one. Mark Antony was really the one that he was most closely attached to. But then when Mark Antony lost out in the Civil War and Augustus became the emperor, he very adroitly shifted his allegiance. And Josephus describes that as very interesting. So he shifts his allegiance to Augustus, and he knows that the only thing that keeps him in power is his friendship with Caesar Augustus. As a result, he is extremely generous towards Caesar Augustus's family. He gives huge donations, builds buildings outside of Israel for Caesar Augustus, but he also builds within Israel. He was a real builder. He built a lot of different buildings, magnificent buildings, names a lot of them after Augustus or some family member of Caesar Augustus's family and other friends in the Roman government. Where did he get the money for this? That's a really tough question, and, and Josephus doesn't answer that, at least to my mind, entirely. But the taxes were heavy in Israel, and Herod was not particularly liked by the people of Judah. Okay, so we've got a paranoid king on the throne, and we have a time in which there is heightened messianic expectation that all over the region... For this period of time, for several decades leading up to the time of Jesus and for some decades after the coming of Jesus, that there is this sense that the Messiah is coming. There are a lot of people that are expecting that. And there are a lot of people who claim to be the Messiah or, or are pushed forward by others as a Messiah figure. And usually these Messiah figures have some kind of political bent, and so it becomes some kind of rebellion that manifests itself in most cases. And Herod is afraid of those. So Herod's way of dealing with this problem is to be absolutely brutal. And he would deal with these uprisings. He would deal with pretenders to the throne in his own family, fears of people in his family taking power away from him. And as a result, he would lash out and deal with them violently in most cases. He ends up killing his two sons, who he was afraid might take... Actually, he ends up killing three sons that he was afraid might take the throne. He also killed his favorite wife, who was the mother of two of those sons. So he's capable of the brutality that's described in Matthew. There is no extra-biblical evidence that Herod killed those young boys in Bethlehem. But as is argued by R.T. France talks about this, there have been studies done using the demographic information available, and it is estimated that at that time, in Bethlehem, there would have been at most between 20 and 30 male children of the age that were killed at that time in that area. So it's not a huge number. And so 
it is argued that in the scope of things, it's not surprising that we wouldn't have a historical record of that event because there were lots of other things that happened that caused this particular incident to pale by comparison. But why does Matthew quote Jeremiah at this point? We have a bunch of children being killed because the fear is the Messiah has come or some pretender to be the Messiah has come who would be potentially a threat to Herod. And so Herod had them all killed. And then it quotes from Jeremiah 31.15. Okay, so Jeremiah 31.15, what's going on there? In the book of Jeremiah, that book as a whole is set in the context of the southern kingdom at a time when the northern kingdom has been defeated and many taken into exile under the Assyrian invasion. But when the Assyrians came in, they were unable to take Jerusalem. They left, all of that's recorded in Isaiah, they left overnight and Judah was ultimately spared even though largely destroyed by the Assyrians. They rebuild and during the time of Josiah then, there is a scroll found in the temple and it is brought out and it is read to the people and it is apparently the scroll of Deuteronomy which apparently had been lost to them. The finding of Deuteronomy, which interestingly was clearly written to a unified kingdom. So it was written to Israel and Judah. It has the unity in mind. And in Jeremiah, it seems to me, much of this is written to both kingdoms. They're included in his remarks to a large extent. This scroll is found, it's read, and it has a huge impact on Josiah, and it seems to have a big impact on other people in Judah. And as a result, there is a reform period that takes place in which Josiah tears down a number of the high places and cleans up the temple and makes a number of changes. It seems to me, if you look at Jeremiah as a whole, that what happened in that reform period is that we have a significant number of people are truly affected by what they're reading in Deuteronomy, are truly convicted, and you see some repentance. But not everyone, and with time, that fades. That seems to be the picture that emerges from Jeremiah. Oh, I should point out that as a result of the Assyrians coming, there was a large influx of people coming from the northern kingdom into Judah, especially into Jerusalem. And my son was studying in Jerusalem, and one of his professors pointed out, for those of you that have been in Hezekiah's tunnel, that if you're aware, they dug up from both sides, and where they met, there was a plaque carved in to the ceiling and describing the event where they met. And this professor said that there are a few indications that that is the dialect of the northern kingdom. So it is probably workers from the northern kingdom that were primarily involved in digging that. And Jerusalem needed a larger water supply to take care of the increased population, many of those coming from the northern kingdom. So 
Jerusalem has become kind of a melting pot for both the northern and the southern kingdom at this point. Okay, most of the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah talks about the judgment that is coming on Judah because of its wickedness. And what Jeremiah says is that Judah should surrender to the Babylonians. They should give up, which is very interesting because in Isaiah earlier, when the Assyrians were coming, it was holed out. But now it's give up. Otherwise, there will be destruction and exile that will come. And what becomes very clear in Jeremiah is that while Jeremiah is giving this message, there is a counter-message that's being spread around Jerusalem. And that is, no, we are righteous. We have carried out the reforms. We've cleaned up our act. We're doing what we should be doing. We are a righteous nation And God will protect us. So no matter how ominous it looks, God will protect us. So that is the counter message that is going around. And those who are spreading the counter message don't want their message undermined by what Jeremiah is saying. And it reaches the point where there is a plot on Jeremiah's life trying to kill him. So that's a summary of the content that happens in the first Uh, 29 chapters. Chapter 30 and 31 are very different in tone from that previous part. These two chapters could be the book that's mentioned in verse 2 of chapter 30, where it says to put the teachings together in a book. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. So it is generally thought that these two chapters are the book that Jeremiah was commanded to write these words into. And this is generally called the book of consolation because it is so different in tone. There is a lot in this section that is very positive and encouraging about the future that awaits them. It says in this section that Israel and Judah both will be saved and that there will be a turning. And the word shuv, the the Hebrew word for turn, is very prominent in these two chapters, but it's used in a variety of different ways. There is a turning that will take place with respect to the people, That is, they will repent. There is also a turning that will take place with respect to God in that he will begin to treat them with favor because of their repentance. And there's another turning that will take place, and that is that their mourning will turn to joy. So this idea of a monumental change that has various aspects to it that is coming. That's one of the themes here in these two chapters. In this, then, verse 15 comes as a bit of a shock. We have this lamentation and this weeping, bitter weeping that's occurring at Ramah. Okay, so why is that taking place? First of all, the question, why Ramah? And Jack got into this a little bit in his background. It is difficult to sort this out. The first thing is, Ramah means an elevated place. And... Jack mentioned there are lots of Ramas. Well, that's because there are lots of elevated places that get named that. And so it can be difficult to determine 
which Ramnam could be referred to here. The other issue is Rama, as it appears in this particular passage, does not have the article on it. And usually when it's talking about the city of Rama, it has the article on it. There is one other place in Nehemiah where it is clearly a reference to the city and it does not have the article. It is interesting to me that there are about four or five passages in Jeremiah where he talks about lamentation and bitter weeping. And in each case, it's on the barren heights that that seems to be the place where lamentation and bitter weeping happens. It's a different word. It's not Rama. It's a different word. But my suspicion is that he is referring to Rama, but he left off the article to draw your attention to the meaning of the name of the place. And the meaning of the name of the place is connoted, connected with lamentation and weeping. If it is the city of Rama, and by the way, Matthew takes it, the way he uses the verse, it is not translated. It is Rama, the name of a city. If it is Rama, in all likelihood, it would be the Rama that's located just north of Jerusalem on what was the border between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which is now Ramallah. And we know from Jeremiah 40, verse 1, as Jack noted, that The Babylonians, after they conquered Judah and after they had destroyed Jerusalem, they gathered the survivors together and they took them to this place, Ramah, which, as I understand it, there's a large spring there, which makes it appropriate for accommodating a large influx of people. They took them there as a temporary concentration camp from which they would then decide the fates of those people that were taken there. And what the Babylonians did is they would, some of the people that were gathered there, they would kill. Some of them they would sell into slavery. And others were shipped off to Babylon in in exile. And it was the Babylonians' strategy at this point to remove all of the people that they thought had the potential of providing leadership. Because if you take away all of the potential leadership, then the chances of a rebellion would be less. So all of the people of promise then, people who showed potential, they were shipped off to Babylon. There is a question as to where Rachel is buried. There are two locations that are possible. One is the traditional location, which is just north of Bethlehem. And that has been the site which has been recognized by Jews as being the burial site of Rachel since the 3rd century A.D. at least. That tradition may go back further, but it goes back at least that far. There is another location, which would be the Rama that, we're, that we've been talking about. Near Rama is the other location that some people say is the place where Rachel was born. And having looked at articles that have been written arguing for both sides, the issue seems to come down to the question of how much credence do you give to tradition? If you think that that tradition is likely to be reliable, that seems to tilt it towards the south. 
And people who write defending the South, that's what they end up relying on. But if you're looking at clues both in Genesis and in Jeremiah, it seems to me that the best case is made for the northern location. If that is indeed true, then Ramah here in Jeremiah is very significant. It is not only the place where they are conducting this triage on the people of Judah that have been taken captive, but it is also the grave of Rachel. So it's a very appropriate place for her then to be crying for what she's seeing. Okay, so then I ask the question, why Rachel? Rachel's one of the wives of Jacob, and she's crying over the fate of her descendants, so that makes sense. She's crying because this is one of the lowest points of Israel's history, and she would be one for whom that would be significant. She's a female. There's crying for children. That's significant. But in Jeremiah, why not Sarah? Why not Rebecca? Why not Leah? Why in particular Rachel? And it's asking that question then that sent me back into Genesis to try to sort that out. Why is Rachel the one that's crying here? Now, I've gone through Genesis twice in detail in the past, but now I went back with this particular question in mind, and I ended up changing my mind at several points. In the past, I hadn't seen Rachel in a particularly positive light. If you look through the narrative, it looks like she's kind of a complainer, maybe spoiled, and makes a lot of mistakes. I tended to be more sympathetic with Leah because her situation is so sad. She's married to a man who doesn't really love her, and she does everything she can to gain his love and never seems to succeed. And Rachel seems to get all of the attention, her sister, and so there's this competition that develops, and it's hard not to feel sorry for Leah, it seems to me. But I look back at Genesis, and I noticed some things that I had not noticed before. And I read some books that influenced my thinking. And so I'm to the place now where I have changed my mind. I'm looking at Rachel much more sympathetically and actually looking at Leah perhaps a little less sympathetically. And I'm going to take you through and explain why it is that I reached that conclusion and I will let you be the judge as to whether I am making stuff up. I will point out that it is my experience with the Hebrew narratives that they are very carefully crafted. And what I mean is they're extremely terse. They're really compact. You don't get a lot of detail, which means that every word is quite significant and is well chosen. And it seems to me that in most cases, were you to take a word out and put in a synonym, it would not work. And it is really carefully crafted. And so the question is, then am I placing too much weight, this particular word here instead of some other word or whatever? And that's, those are the kinds of things that you have to be the judge of. What I saw as I went back through Genesis is that in the narrative, what you see is the patriarchs over time growing in faith and understanding. There is in the narrative lots of dysfunction in those families. 
And that's very clear. And that dysfunction causes problems for the next generation, which causes problems for the next generation, which ultimately is going to lead to the division of the kingdoms. <laughs> it's just, it's an amazing, this domino effect of the dysfunction that starts out in the patriarchal family. And as you look at each character, each patriarch in particular, you can find fault with every one of them. And I used to think, yeah, but you see them getting better. And I'm not sure that that's the case. It's not so much that they get better, but the big transformation that takes place is they begin to value what God has to offer more. That they begin to value the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the big transformation. There are implications of that for their behavior. Because if they are devoted to what God has to offer, they are also devoted to that God. They value what he values, and that has an implications for their behavior. So I have put in this outline, you will notice asterisks. And I have put asterisks where my thinking this last time through Genesis changed significantly. Okay. So what we end up with then is this kind of what I'm calling a patriarchal trajectory. And I will draw it on the board. It's a, this is a complicated concept. That over time, what happens to their faith, and in particular, I'm going to say how much they value what God values and believe that he will deliver on that. And it goes like this. <laughs> With every one of them, you can see that general trajectory. But this is not quite accurate because I think if we were to chart it out more carefully, it's like this. But that's really what it looks like is that there are challenges along the way. They make great strides and then you see them do something really stupid that shows a level of faithlessness. So it's a general trend upward, but it's, this, it's not a straight line. Okay, and I think that this trajectory can be seen in Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah, but I'm going to start with Jacob. And so I'm going to work from the birth of Jacob to the death of Rebekah. And the reason that I'm starting with Jacob is I want to show that trajectory. I think that trajectory is particularly true of Jacob, but I also think that the author of Genesis wants us to see a lot of parallels between Jacob and Rachel. Jacob is one of a twin. Rebecca was barren for a long period of time, but then she conceived, had these two twin boys in her womb, and they must have been fighting like cats and dogs. She despaired of her life because the activity in her womb was so great. Esau was the one that was born first, and, but Jacob, coming out second, grabbed the heel of Esau. So there's struggle going out even as they're being born. There's struggle going on. And when Rebecca cried out with this turmoil in her womb, she received an oracle from God, which includes this line, and the older shall serve the younger. So that's something that God had said even before they were born, that that's what that would be the case. Jacob, when he was born, was given the name Jacob, which means God protects, but it sounds like the word for heal. So it has two significances. 
One is because he grabbed the heel of Esau, that seemed to be an appropriate name. But it means God protects, and there's a significance there as well. I'm mentioning this because we're going to be looking at other names, and it seems to me that it is common in the way that they're thinking about it that at the time of birth, they will give the child a name that has a significance, and that significance is appropriate for the child in some way. But it is not uncommon for there to be attendant circumstances that there's some word in describing the attendant circumstances that's also appropriate for the event. And I thought of an example that we could use in English. Let's say a mother had a very difficult labor and got very tired before the child was born. The child is born and the mother names him Peter, knowing very well that Peter means rock, but she says, because I almost petered out before he was born. (laughs) So there are two significances to the name, both of which are appropriate in some way. Yeah, well, you were the inspiration. Okay. So I think that's what's going on. In the past, scholars would say, well, they thought it meant heal, but it didn't really mean heal. Now we know better. But if you look at what they've done with the names in general, they seem to be playing with the name very often. And Robert Alter, whose work I like very, very much, he comments on that in his, in his translation of the five books of Moses. Okay, so he's born, he's named Jacob. There's the purchase of the birthright. I'm going to go through these quickly because I'm sure that you're familiar with the stories. Here, Esau went out hunting. He was an outdoorsman. Jacob, on the other hand, liked to stay in the tents. But Esau was an outdoorsman, went out hunting. He'd been out in the field one day hunting. He may have liked to hunt, but he was probably a hunter like me. Didn't ever get anything. But on this day, he didn't get anything. So he comes back empty-handed. He's hungry. And Jacob, at the time, is fixing some stew. And Esau, in barbaric language, (laughs) says, give me some red. Give me some of that stew, red stew. And Esau's name, by the way, means red because he was covered with red hair. So give me some red. And Jacob, he sees an opportunity here. I mean, he is his mother's child. He sees an opportunity here and wants to take advantage of it. And he says, trade me the birthright for the stew. I'll give you the stew if you give me the birthright. And Esau's thinking, boy, I'm so hungry. If I don't get some food right away, I'm just going to die. And what good would the birthright be to me then? Sure, fair deal. So he eats the stew and he leaves. Jacob gets the birthright. And we have a very significant statement then, a very unusual kind of statement that ends that section where it says, Thus Esau despised his birthright. That is very uncommon in the historical narratives to have that kind of value statement given. Those don't happen very often. That what this person did was wrong or this what this person did was good. There are a few of those, but they don't occur frequently. So it really stands out. Then the next account has Jacob then got the birthright. Now he gets the blessing. Isaac 
preferred Esau to Jacob. Rebekah, her favorite was Jacob, but Isaac's favorite was Esau. And I'm not sure exactly what is being indicated here, but we see Esau, he's kind of animal-like. He's got the hair all over him, and he comes in to ask for the food, and it's just, there's no please, there's no niceties about it. It's just, give me some red. Isaac, as we see later, is very dependent on his senses. In the deception, every sense is involved, and every sense tells him that it is Esau except his hearing. His hearing says it's Jacob. And he goes with all of the other senses over his hearing. So there's something about Isaac being a man of the senses. And that seems to be part of what links them together. Isaac was blind to Esau's flaws. This section starts out indicating that Esau had married Canaanite women and that it grieved Jacob and Rebekah. But Isaac doesn't seem to have any impact in the way that he looks at his son. And Esau didn't value the birthright. We see that in him selling it in exchange for some stew. So I think what we're to see here is that Esau is one that does not value God's promises. He gives away the birthright, which would include the promises that were given to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, and we'd be passed on through the birthright. And so I think we're to see that he does not value God's promises. And, and this is a change in my thinking, it seems to me then that the text is indicating that Isaac should have recognized that Esau was not an appropriate heir for the birthright. For Rebekah, on the other hand, it was patently clear that Esau was not the right person to inherit that Jacob was the right person to inherit. And so she sees an opportunity to make sure that the blessing then, he's already received the birthright, she wants to make sure that the blessing then is passed on to Jacob. So Isaac has told Esau that he wants to give him the blessing, but before he gives him the blessing, he would like Esau to go out and get some game and make some stew like Esau does so well and to serve it to Isaac. Rebekah hears that that is what's happening and so she decides here is an opportunity to make sure that Jacob gets the blessing rather than Esau and to do it by deception. So she comes up with this plan to trick Isaac and as you're all aware, Then Jacob puts the hair on his arms and wears the clothing of Esau so that he smells like Esau. And she fixes some stew the way that Esau fixed it. And he brings it in and presents all of this to Isaac in order to receive the blessing. Isaac is fooled by the deception. And as a result, he gives the blessing to Jacob. And in this blessing, interestingly, what he says in the blessing places an emphasis on prosperity and power that will come to Jacob as a part of this blessing, rather than emphasizing the promises that had been passed down from Abraham to Isaac. When Isaac and Esau then discovered the deception, Isaac couldn't take back the blessing. Now, I don't know the rules of blessings in those days. It may be that once given, you can't take them back. But it could also be, and I think this is playing a part in it, that in that deception, 
Isaac was awakened to the reality that Jacob was actually the better inheritor. That he's coming to that realization. He recognizes that. And so even if the rules did forbid him taking them back, I think he would have chosen not to take back the blessing because I think he's realized at this point that that's what should have happened. Esau was angry when he realized what had happened and he vows to get his revenge on his brother Jacob. So the next section talks about Jacob being sent to Haran. And again, it's Rebekah that's proposing this plan of action. She's primarily wanting to save him from Esau and, and Esau's anger. But the reason that she gives, the reason that she uses to argue with Isaac that this should happen is in order that he can find an appropriate wife. So Jacob is prepared then to go off to Haran. And now Isaac gives a blessing to Jacob. So this is another blessing that he gives. And interestingly, this one sounds a lot more like the blessing that was given to Abraham by God and the one that was repeated to Isaac, emphasizing the descendants without number and that they would possess the land of Canaan. And so I think what we're seeing here is Isaac coming to the place where he recognizes that Jacob is the rightful heir. He's the one who God really wanted to have as the heir. Then, as Jacob leaves, God speaks to Jacob and repeats, God gives him a blessing which repeats a lot of the elements that we've seen given to Abraham, the descendants without number, the promise of the land Canaan will be given to them, and a reiteration of things that have been said both to Abraham and to Isaac, that is, I will protect you. And in particular, he was talking about protection that would be provided to him on his trip as he went to Haran and back. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit just to finish up with Jacob because this is not, this particular one is not in order. But this incident in which Jacob wrestles with the angel. Jacob, this is just before he's going to meet with Esau, and he's very apprehensive about meeting with Esau because he knows Esau was mad at him years ago, and he assumes that that anger has continued. Jacob is by himself at this particular point in time for the night, and during the night, this man comes to him, and Jacob wrestles with him, and seems to gain an awareness that this man is in some sense God. He's an angel of God or something, but he's in some sense God. And Jacob is wrestling with him and won't let him go. And the man says, let me go. And and Jacob says, not until I receive a blessing. And even though the man touches his hip and dislocates his hip, Jacob continues to hold on until he gets the blessing. I think that's a phenomenal image that I want desperately what God's giving. Desperately want what God's giving. And I think that seeing that progression of Jacob coming to the place where he wanted the inheritance early, but what we see over time is wanting what God is giving out becomes life for him. That's the most important thing for him. And he will wrestle 
this man until he gets that blessing. He is blessed then by God and renamed, and he's renamed Israel, which means God will prevail. And the phrase that's used is because you have striven with God and man and have prevailed. Okay. So now we'll switch to tell the story of Rachel here. Jacob met and fell in love with Rachel right away. He agreed to work for her for seven years. That was the agreement. But Laban had, Laban, her father, had two daughters. And on the wedding night, he substituted Leah, the older daughter, in the place of Rachel so that Jacob slept with Leah on his wedding night rather than with Rachel. Now, Leah's the oldest, and she had weak eyes, but there is, it's not clear what weak means in this context. But we'll just go with unattractive. That may not be the case, but we'll go with unattractive for our purposes here. Rachel, on the other hand, is the youngest, and she is beautiful. So Jacob ends up being married to Leah, even though he hadn't, that was not what he had thought that he had agreed to. But he had been tricked, so he had been the victim of deception here. The deceiver is victim of deception here. And he agrees to work for seven more years in order to get Rachel as his wife. So he ends up being married to both Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah, sisters, obviously, they develop a competition here. Because Leah was fertile but unloved, Rachel was loved by Jacob, but barren. So Leah wants desperately to be loved by Jacob, and Rachel wants desperately to have children. And that's the driving dynamic between their competition. Now, as we go through this section, we don't have many incidents to tell us what they're thinking as they go through this competition. Our main clues are the names that they give to the children along the way. And what's difficult is... There is uncertainty as to what some of those names actually mean. So it becomes difficult. But one of the books that I looked at, he used the names of Rachel as the indicator of what they're thinking and a way of determining the trajectories of both Leah and Rachel. In this competition, neither Rachel nor Leah conducted themselves admirably. They both do a number of things that are stupid and, I think, regrettable. But Leah was the one who first had children. She starts out with four sons. If you look at the names of those first four sons, and you can look at those on your sheet, each one of those seems to say, now my husband will love me, in one way or another. They're all, now my husband will love me. And I think even the last one, which means this time I will praise the Lord, I think that is hopeful, wishful thinking, because now my husband will love me, I think is the idea behind it. So Rachel became jealous, and she says to Jacob, give me children or else I die. A bit dramatic, but obviously children are very important to her, and I think in this competition she feels herself losing badly, and so that heightens her sense of needing children. And in the cultural context, children were very important. So, Rachel gives her maid to Jacob to have children. The first one is named Dan, which means vindication. But I think you can tell from the passage it was very hollow vindication. It wasn't very vindicating. It didn't satisfy her. 
She names the next one Naphtali, and that is an interesting and line that comes with that. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. My suspicion is, oh, and the with mighty wrestlings could be translated with the wrestlings of God. Elohim shows up in that phrase and an interesting use of the word Elohim, which typically means God. So I think what's being hinted at is she has come to the place where she recognizes that there's this struggle going on, this struggle with Leah, but ultimately it is not a struggle with Leah, it's a struggle with God, that her barrenness is, is ultimately God's doing. Leah then retaliates. She gives her maid over to Jacob, and they have and their two sons, Gad, which means fortunate, and Asher, which means happy. And she says, when Asher is born, happy am I, for women will call me happy. Interesting, because she's looking at how she's perceived by other people as being the significant thing here. In the next incident, Rachel ends up buying an aphrodisiac because the oldest son of Leah brings home some mandrakes, which are thought to have aphrodisiac qualities. Rachel asked for some. Leah reacted negatively, no way. You took my husband. I'm not giving you these. So Rachel trades the mandrakes in exchange for Leah spending the night with Jacob. So Leah spends the night with Jacob and gives birth to another child. And she names him Issachar. God has given me wages because I gave my maid to Jacob. The word wages here, take note of that. And I think her thinking behind this is at least God sees that I have been good to Jacob. At least God sees how much I have done to deserve the love of Jacob. The second one, and then she has another son born to Jacob. She names him Zebulun. God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me. Zebulun is the word, the name Zebulun has the same consonants as gift. It also has the same consonants as dwell. So both of those words are related, are connected then by her to that name. And I think, again, these names are a way of trying to beg for Jacob's attention. Finally, then, Rachel bears a son. God remembered Rachel. And she bore a son, Joseph, and she names him that for two reasons. God has taken away my reproach, and may the Lord give me another son. And Joseph is, sounds like the word to take away as well as the word to add. But we see from this name that Rachel wants more children. And I used to think that that was... She just wants what Leah wants, and that is to be viewed well by everybody else, that she wants more children, and so that she fits the role of mother that was true in Hebrew society at the time. But I'm suspicious now that what we're to see from this is she's reached the point where she values what God is giving. And the inheritance includes children without number who will inherit the land. In order to have children without number, you've got to have children. So I think she sees more children as what God had promised, and she wants that. After Joseph is born, Jacob flees from Haran. He takes his family with them. Laban comes chasing after them. 
I'll do this very quickly. As you know, Rachel ended up stealing the teraphim. There's a lot of discussion of what are the significance of these teraphim household idols. And there are a number of things that have been listed as possible significances of those idols. There's an interesting essay by Ruther Glenn. You can find it on the internet. She won the Norton and Sons Publishing Company Essay of the Year in 2005 or 6 with her essay on this. She makes an interesting argument where she says it's not so much the significance of these household idols, but it's if you look at the passage, there's so much emphasis on separation taking place when Jacob is leaving that she thinks that the emphasis is on her difficulty breaking with home and everything that's familiar. And as a result, she grabbed the teraphim and took them. And so, influenced by that essay, I'm inclined to think that this is not so much a sign of her waywardness, but it's one of these dips. It's one of these turns in which she's just having a difficult time coping with a very difficult transition that she is having to make. The last incident then is the death of Rachel. They're on their way to, they've come to Canaan. They're making their way south toward the place where Jacob had grown up and where Esau is still living. And on their way to that land, Rachel goes into labor. It's a very difficult labor. And she's on the verge of death as the baby is delivered. And the nursemaid says, As she's dying, do not fear, for now you have another son. So she's dying as the thing that she wanted so badly, another son, is being delivered alive. She names him Ben-Oni, which, and here, Rachel's going to name him something, then Jacob's going to name him something. Both names are ambiguous. It's not clear what either one of the names means for sure. So that makes it difficult. But obviously they're playing off one another. She names him Ben-Oni, which is usually translated son of my affliction, but it's possible that it means son of my vigor. Jacob then comes along and renames it. He hasn't named any of his other children, but he renames it and says it's Benjamin, which means son of the right, or it can mean, some people have argued, it could mean son of days, meaning son who's coming in my latter years. Okay, so the question is, how are these names playing off each other? And I will just give you my take, but there are lots of different possibilities. I think that she is going with son of my affliction. I think that's what she's intending. That here it is, I've got what I wanted so badly. It is so sad that he is born in the midst of my affliction and that I will not be able to enjoy this child that God has given me. Jacob is coming along and saying, is he's recognizing that God's favor was closer than she realized. That this is her affliction, yes, but she was closer to experiencing that which God had promised than she thought. So he names it son of the right, which can mean son of the south, because Benjamin was the only one born in the land of Canaan which is south of Haran, where the others were born. So what he would be doing then is underscoring, but this was in the promised land. This was closer to realizing the promises than than you are recognizing. So 
She died there after the birth. She was buried there. She's the only one of the matriarchs or patriarchs that was not buried in the cave of Machpelah. And so some see this as divine punishment for her. But I don't think so. I don't think that's what we're intended to see. Jacob erects a pillar there so that she would be remembered. And the text says that that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And I think suggesting that she continues to be remembered and honored long after her death. Okay. Towards the end of Genesis then, Jacob, he calls Joseph's sons in to bless them. So these are his grandchildren. And he blesses them and gives them a portion that is equal to all of his sons' portions. As a result, Joseph is in effect receiving a double portion. Does that make sense? And to receive a double portion is to receive the portion of the firstborn, typically. So it's a favored position. So Joseph is being treated as the firstborn, and his sons each are receiving a share of the inheritance. And Jacob says on this occasion that he's doing this in memory of Rachel, which suggests that this is a kind of posthumous consolation to his favorite wife. So he has continued throughout his life to love and respect his wife, Rachel. Interestingly, Leah is not mentioned. After the birth of the last child, she is not mentioned except on an occasion where it's listing the sons and who they were born to. Okay, in this section where he gives the blessings to Joseph's sons and where he's talking about Rachel, there are three times that he repeats the phrase, on the way. On the way had been used earlier with respect to the tomb when they were on the way to Bethlehem. And here it's repeated three times. And I read an article in which Strickert, I think, Frederick Strickert is the one who argues that that is very significant. On the way is suggesting that Rachel is seen as one who was on the way. And I think that that is significant. I think that is right. That Rachel is one who desperately wants the promises. She really wants the favor of God, but is frustrated in fully experiencing that. So she's on the way. Okay. This could be translated in different ways. I'll just point out Leon Cass, who wrote a book called The Beginning of Wisdom, where he goes through Genesis, which is a very good book, full of very interesting comments. He argues just the opposite. He argues that Rachel is a negative figure and that Leah is a positive figure. But I think that when it comes down to it, Rachel is one who had her own struggles with God, much like Jacob had had, but with difficulty, she comes to value God and everything that God values, but never got to enjoy the realization of God's promises. Okay, if that's the case, then we go back to Jeremiah. It seems to me she puts in perfectly that what's happening in Jeremiah is it looks like it's the end of Judah. Israel's already gone, and now it looks like Judah's gone. The leadership, the best people of Judah have been taken into captivity. They're all going to be shipped off to Babylon. Judah's done for all intents and purposes. And so to have Rachel weeping there is very fitting. And yet what God says to Rachel is also very fitting. And that is, restrain your voice from weeping. It is not a time for weeping because this is not the end of Judah. And God says, for your work 
shall be rewarded. And I think for your work, it's looking at Rachel's trajectory and her coming to the place where she's embracing the promises of God and valuing them. So your work will be rewarded. And interesting, this word for reward here is the same word that Leah had said when she was saying that she was rewarded for giving her maid over to Jacob. So she got a child. This is Rachel's reward. And Rachel's reward is those exiles will be saved. Your descendants will be preserved. And they will be brought back from that land to here. And the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they will be fulfilled. And you can be certain in that. If that's what she's doing in Jeremiah, then it seems to me it makes a lot of sense also in Matthew. Where again, it's looking like the low point in the life of the descendants of Abraham or a low point in which they are subjugated to a cruel king who is subject to the power of a cruel empire, Rome. And that king would like to stamp out the promises of God in the person of of Jesus. And as a result then, there is mourning because of the death of these innocent children. And this looks like it is a point in history when the promises cannot be fulfilled. And yet, the promises are indeed in the process of being fulfilled. Jesus was spared that death, goes away and is saved in Egypt and will come back then to carry out his mission. Okay, I'm done.